Okay, so here I have the Virginia field coordinator for Appalachian Voices. Her name is, is Jess Sims. We spoke last year in a podcast. I'm so glad to actually be able to have her back. How are you today, Jess? I'm great. How are you doing? Uh, I'm hanging in there, hanging in there. Um, it's uh, it's It's been a long year, especially since Republicans took over. And um, fortunately, the amount of progress we were able to make in the House of Delegates mm-hmm. this past year before Republicans got in has saved us quite a lot of headache as Republicans took over. Um, mm-hmm. But as we're just about to discuss, it doesn't seem that um, really either party is going to save us in this case. We are going to have to push the Democratic Party to do mm-hmm. the right thing because just this past month, Joe Manchin has essentially decided that he was going to try and make some sort of deal with Democratic Party leadership. And that deal was, okay, I'll vote for what's called the Inflation Reduction mm-hmm. Act, which is essentially some mm-hmm. taxes for deficit reduction. And also I'll put some money towards climate change in terms of EV funding and in terms of being able to change the electric and power grid. And in exchange mm-hmm. for that, I want what's called permitting reform. Can you explain what is meant by permitting reform? Sure. And I'll, you know, I'll kind of start this off. Thanks again for talking to me. It's great to reconnect with you after this time. And Certainly, the environment is a nonpartisan issue, and we look to our elected officials to move us towards a just and equitable transition to a clean energy economy and future and one that is healthy for all. So we saw that negotiations for the previous version of the Build Better Act did not come to a place of agreement, and then Senator Joe Manchin provided the text and framework for the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed earlier this late late summer fall. And so we found out on August 1st, by way of him releasing a framework publicly, that he had what at that time he was calling energy permitting provision kind of wish list. And that wish list included changing some of the parameters of the Clean Water Act, NEPA. Those are both two bedrock environmental protections for the nation. Yeah. So National Environmental Policy Act. And so part of what was in that framework additionally would have led to the limiting of states autonomy over determining water quality issues, the autonomy of tribal nations to weigh in and have autonomy over permitting issues. And then the last line of that was meant to move forward the Mountain Valley Pipeline. So that was not spelled out how he intended to do that. Um, After that, we saw a draft that was watermarked by the American Petroleum Institute, and that had some additional detail of what he was then touting as a permitting reform. And we had a glimpse into what his Senate counterpart was thinking when she released an amendment that was defeated in the IRA negotiations. But more recently, we saw his final bill draft. And this was the Energy Independence and Security Act, which he released not that long ago, last week, with the intention of a vote happening this past Tuesday. So Senator Manchin said publicly that it was part of a deal that he made with leadership, meaning Senator Schumer, and that it was all part of the same deal for him. Um, he mentioned that on a radio interview and said that to members of the public when we were part 
of a collaborative frontline community event on September 8th in DC. So he did not get his intended outcome on Tuesday, owing to lots of resistance from both sides of the aisle and a tremendous amount of community and constituent pressure and pressure from environmental justice communities and environmental justice leadership from those on both sides of the aisle in the House and in the Senate, highlighting Representative Grijalva led a Dear Colleague letter with over 77 signers, citing concern. And within the Senate, we saw a significant amount of opposition to it, attaching it to a continuing resolution, which is how he was hoping to put this through procedurally to have it attached to the budget. So that was pulled from the continuing resolution Tuesday around 5 p.m. Just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. His counterpart is uh, Senator Capito of West Virginia. She's also dedicated to the fossil fuel industry. Charleston and West Virginia itself is the most polluted state, certainly the most polluted state capital in the country. If you actually drive through Charleston, go through uh, 66 out there, just, I mean, not even, not even a mile, just within city borders. If you're actually going past it, past through, I like, over Charleston, out past I-66, you will see on both sides of the highway huge fossil fuel refineries. And the smell and the, the headache that you can get just by passing through that area is incredible. I don't even know how people live in Charleston. It's very unfortunate that West Virginia is one of the poorest states in the Union, and one of the ways that its economy is set up is resource extraction and the kind of deal that its citizens receive in terms of jobs and security has of course been failing in exchange for the environment around them and their health, has really been abandoned by coal barons and people like Senator Joe Manchin. Now, I just want to be sure everyone's on the same page. When we talk about permitting reform, he had a press conference last week stating that he had a little piece of paper and he drew out for us that in the United States, you see, it takes five to 10 years to get infrastructure through, fossil fuel infrastructure through. In Canada, it takes one to three years. And in Australia, it takes one to three years. So why don't we be like them and let's get it through? What he, of course, doesn't mention is that Australia to this very day in 2022 is still passing, uh, is still trying to open coal mines and is still successfully doing so. And on top of that, Canada, even though some 80% of its energy comes from hydroelectric power, an overwhelming majority of its carbon emissions don't even come from its energy production or transportation. It comes from the fact of how much oil it produces and the kind of oil it produces, namely tar sands, which is essentially strip mining an entire area, chopping down its forest, and getting what is essentially almost looks like bitumen out of the ground. And it's pumped through these pipelines at, at very high pressures, high temperatures, and is eventually refined and is very, very polluting. It is the most polluting and inefficient fossil fuel on the planet, as far as we know. And so that's what Canada and Australia do. He is looking to bring that to the United States. Now, the United States history of community involvement in the form of NEPA, and also in terms of regulations of the Environmental Protection Agency, much of this requires a lot of hurdles in terms of companies having to hire private organizations, biologists, environmentalists, having to hire them in order to 
do work to see what kind of species are in the area, what kind of impact that could have. And usually they're able to be challenged in court or with the EPA. And so that takes an extended period of time. And Joe Manchin mentioned last week, MVP was well over project, almost double his project, which many people in the environmental movement are very happy about, considering that it's over budget because of how many obstacles it has to pass. Now, what he calls permitting reform is essentially going about completely stripping local communities of their ability to put their voice into these projects that are going to go through their backyards, going to go through their forests, going to be on top of their water tables, going to pollute into their air, going to spill onto their soil. And so also on top of that, it strips states quite a bit of their ability to have jurisdiction to challenge, or the very least to have citizens be able to challenge these fossil fuel infrastructure. And before I ask this next question, I just want to make sure this frame correctly. A lot of this fossil fuel infrastructure is not set up for like, oh, hey, you know, we're going to make it and, you know, the gasoline is going to flow and you're going to see it real soon. A lot of this stuff is like investment opportunities that are set up in a way that are going to pay off as fast as possible. And these infrastructure projects have like 30 year horizons, 50 year horizons. Oil and gas lines go out for almost a hundred years in many places like New York or Richmond or anywhere really on the East coast in the Northeast, you will see hundred year old infrastructure in terms of gas lines. And that is because a lot of that infrastructure is planned on that kind of timeline. Walk us through what the permitting process would look like. Yes. But I want to start by touching on what you included in what Senator Manchin mentioned. The delays for a project such as Mountain Valley Pipeline are not because of the legal challenges or limitations within the regulatory process. They are because companies are not complying with the law, and that is why they lose authorizations. So it, he is mischaracterizing the reason for delays. When there is an interstate project, it requires review by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And so companies would submit a pre-application to that federal agency who would review a project under the terms of the Natural Gas Act. A pre-application would go in and it would open a scoping comment period, which is where interested parties, members of the public can weigh in with what they think should be included in an environmental assessment. Either an environmental assessment or an environmental impact statement is created and there's an opportunity for public comment. So we see that through the FERC process, it's a complicated process to participate. There's a lot of opaqueness. That's one thing we're always concerned about is making sure people know what is being proposed for their area. If it is interstate, meaning it is traveling from one state to another, then it's under federal purview. If it is an intrastate pipeline, then it's under state review. And so that looks different from state to state. But for interstate pipelines, you would have the federal process which would begin, and then that would have generally a concurrent or simultaneous state-level permitting process. So depending on the state and the state's requirements, they may also need special use permits for parts of the project. They would require water permits from the state, Clean Water Act 401 permit. They may require an Army Corps 404 permit. We saw in the case of the Atlantic Coast and Mountain Valley pipelines, they needed 
nationwide permits. Those blanket permits were used and eventually lost for this project for MVP. They would need an air permit if there's a compressor station related to the project. So there's a series of both federal and state level permissions that they would need to be able to proceed. And we see that sometimes FERC will qualify the ability of a project to move forward by saying you need to have all authorizations in place. So that would include often for a federal interstate pipeline permissions from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, and federally Army Corps of Engineers. So it's a process that can take a couple years for review. We're actually, we're the last day of a comment period for what is qualified as interstate pipeline in Virginia, the Virginia Reliability Project, because it's an expansion of an existing interstate line. So although it's what is being proposed for this sort of application is not traveling into a different state, it is part of an interstate line. So that whole process, typically at the scoping comment period level, and then in reaction to the environmental impact statement, has corresponding public meetings where people can come and submit a comment verbally and then also submit written comments. So we see lots of ways for this process to improve, to be more transparent, to better involve the community engagement. Recently, the FERC opened their Office of Public Participation. They've sort of been tasked with making that process more accessible to members of the public. I'm really glad that you broke that down because especially in the case of Joe Manchin, that really matters because the way that they do frame it is these legal challenges are what is slowing us down. And in fact, what's happening is they are breaking the law in terms of clean water, in terms of clean air, not getting the correct permits, building on land that's not theirs, all sorts of, of manner of law breaking. And a lot of those challenges are to be brought in to public comment and also be brought to court. And Without them being held accountable, yes, those projects would go through a lot quicker. To the extent that you can, can you walk us through what that would look like? What would the proposal, what would Joe Manchin's proposal actually materially look like? What kind of changes does it make if it were to pass, not just in the continuing resolution, which it is out of for now, but say it were snuck in somewhere in the future? What does it look like in terms of changing the permitting process on the local, state, and federal level? So he would be changing it on the federal level. I can't say what it would look like because we don't know that what he would put forward is the same as what he put forward with the Energy Independence and Security Act. So I can only speak to what was in that, which originally included changes to the Clean Water Act, which he did remove when it was attached, but it would limit NEPA review that version would have made the review process for applications from agencies really short, sometimes a year, and would have agencies, I mentioned some of the agencies that have had to look at the MVP project, but it would ask them to kind of do their research and make their decision in a quicker time frame and simultaneously. So they're not, wouldn't have an ability to learn from the, the research and the resources of each other. It would limit review. And you limit a timeline, you're just limiting the public's ability to participate. That's another effect of that. And that specifically, when it came into the continuing resolution, had a provision saying, here is how I am going to attempt to mandate the completion of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And it directed federal agencies to grant authorizations that are missing. It said, we will have no judicial review of those going forward. We see that 
There was significant opposition from both parties to his Energy Independence and Security Act, and that there is maybe different versions of how people would view them, but a call from both sides asking for permitting reform. So that may look different depending on who is drafting the content. But yeah, I can't speculate on what he would or would not have in a new version, but we're certainly remaining vigilant for any attempts to push that forward or attach it to other other items like the Defense Authorization Act. And so that's really important to note that the main change that he's proposing to make is to limit community involvement. Is that right? It's, it's to shorten the time period for the community or the state to be able to put comment on these projects? He's explicitly stated to a member of the public that community input was the reason for delay. Right, right. When he was so, on the, right. Yeah, so he, it, it is a, his perspective that that is something that's a problem, which it's not. <laughs> it's an essential right. part of the process and should be, and this, any kind of regulatory review, agency review should be strengthened, not weakened. Right. And, and the thing is, it's very important to understand that these aren't just like, you know, solar panels. And we'll get to Glenn Youngkin and his reclassification of solar panels and how he's decided he's going to slow down the adoption of renewable energy in Virginia. It's incredible. Essentially adding what are called awning laws, and it has to be able to bear a certain amount of weight. And anyway, I'll go into that in a second. But what's amazing is, is that they view that kind of lowercase d democratic input, that community input as a problem. They think that this is 30, 50, 100 year infrastructure. And yeah, it could poison your water. Yes, of course, it could spill thousands of gallons of oil or natural gas and chemicals all over the floor of precious forests. Yeah, we know there's a possibility that we might have to burn off some of it or some of the most noxious chemicals in some of the most sensitive wildlife areas in the country, if not the world. But you know, that whole community stuff, it's just, there's too much, you know, it's just, that's what's really taken it over the line. And I think that's amazing that he decided that, that this is the time that he wants to try something like that in the aftermath of the IRA. Now, I, I want to get into just a bit of the politics about this, because what's amazing is, is that he decided for well over a year that he was going to try and stall the Democratic agenda as much as possible. The American Rescue Plan Act was made smaller. The PRO Act was not included because of him and Kirsten Cinema. The $15 minimum wage was not included because of him and Kirsten Cinema, And many other provisions were not included. But ARPA passed $1.9 trillion. Okay, we got the shots in arms. We got the stimulus checks out. We got a lot of PPP loans out. There was a lot of good provisions in it. It got pushed through. The next part was going to be Build Back Better and then the American Families Plan. The American Families Plan and Build Back Better kind of got pushed together. Bernie Sanders comes out, says, okay, it's going to be $6 trillion. This is my framework. The House says, all right, we're going to go with three and a half because this is reconciliation. We're going to go with three and a half. And this is all over 10 years. She's talking about $350 billion a year in terms of government spending, $350 million a year, three and a half trillion. Now, that is an incredibly small amount of money in terms of the overall economy. However, that's what the House agrees to. They have all sorts of great provisions in it, continuing with the child tax credit, paid family and medical leave in the middle of a pandemic, expanding unemployment benefits. Also on top of that, expanding the 
amount of money for HBCUs and for community colleges, making community college tuition free in the United States, all sorts of great things that were included. Child care, wonderful. All of that taken right out, all the way down to 1.75. And we get down to last November, and they're standing out on the steps of Capitol Hill. And Pramila Jayapal says, you know, we got a deal. We stripped it down to 1.9. And so at this point, we're going to go ahead and try and tack it on. He says he can agree to it. We're going to tack it on and we're going to put it alongside the bipartisan infrastructure framework. Two trillion dollars essentially just given away to a lot of fossil fuel companies Mm -hmm. and some infrastructure companies. Okay, then they uncouple it because Joe Manchin gives President Biden his word. Joe Manchin, a week before Christmas, just a few days before Christmas, comes out and says, actually, just kidding. We're not doing any of that. I'm not going to vote for it. I can't vote for it. So that's it. We're going to pass Biff, but Bill by Better dies. He stalls the Democratic agenda for well over a year. He strips stuff out. The Democrats essentially talk about stuff that they're not going to do, that they're not going to pass for six months <laughs> straight from June until December. Okay. Now he comes up in August of 2022, over a year after Build Back Better was proposed and crafted. And he comes back and says, you know what? In fact, we are. We're going to sneak through the IRA. We're going to sneak the Inflation Reduction Act, even though McConnell says any sort of reconciliation spending will be a death knell for the CHIPS Act, the ability to give subsidies to large semiconductor and IT firms within the United States, try and get them to come stateside again. So any spending is going to make that dead on arrival. As soon as it has the votes in the Senate and it passes, that is when the IRA is announced and they're like, oh, we actually do have a deal and we're going to go ahead and pass it. McConnell and Republicans are furious because Manchin essentially lied to them. They consider him in terms of like Politico, the Hill, inside baseball kind of stuff. They consider him a quote unquote friend and ally in stopping Democrats. And then he comes back and is like, actually, no, we got the IRA. And then he turns around and he's like, well, I know that we're going to miss, that we're going to lose a few Democrats on this, but we'll make up for it with the Republicans who are going to vote for this permitting reform. Republicans give two reasons for why they're not going to support this quote-unquote permitting reform. One, it doesn't do enough to quiet communities in terms of their ability to make public comment and to and states and communities to challenge violations of the law in court. But on top of that, you screwed us over. So we're definitely not going to pass that. And so Manchin's just kind of sitting there with, thank God, Tim Kaine and also Bernie Sanders saying, actually... We, under no circumstances, are going to pass this because, as far as Tim Kaine stated, he wasn't consulted at all. He wasn't consulted at all when it came to this permitting reform, when it came to passing MVP. It doesn't even seem that, from what I understand, Tim Kaine had some sort of environmental opposition to this. It just seems like I was completely left out of this, and you're looking to just drive a pipeline through my state that people in my state don't want. And so I'm definitely going to oppose it. And Bernie Sanders says, we're definitely going to sink it. So it doesn't have 50, let alone 60 votes to pass. And so what are they going to? So what is he going to do? He doesn't have the votes. It's amazing to me that he wanted to play it all different ways. And eventually he got nothing. Eventually they got the smallest bit of Build Back Better that they possibly could with none of the social welfare spending associated with it. 
but they got some environmental regulation with it. And so now Joe Manchin's just kind of left holding nothing, an empty sack, because he's got nothing to bring home to the coal and oil and fossil fuel barons that he's friends with and that donate to his campaign. I think that's wonderful. I'm so glad that almost a year after he lied to the face of the president about passing Build Back Better in its most shaved down form, that he was just completely and utterly humiliated in Washington. I'm grateful myself personally that that did not pass. I do want to move on to specifically Virginia. Now, Glenn Youngkin is unfortunately our governor right now. And unfortunately, we have to deal with Republicans in the form of the executive being able to enforce certain laws. So people like Jason Miaris are also not going to be challenging things like the MVP or ordering investigations, things like that. State Environmental Board is also largely now controlled by Republicans. Glenn Youngkin is also one of his first acts was to try and pull Virginia out of what's called Reggie, R-G-G-I. Can you explain to us what Reggie is and what the significance was of having Virginia within that framework? So Governor Yunkin made one of his campaign promises was removing us from Reggie, which is the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is a multi-state, 11-state climate initiative that puts a cap on carbon emissions. And essentially, companies are buying carbon allowance, and those become lower in number in terms of availability. And then what they're paying towards those allowances goes back to the states that are within Reggie, and then they can use that revenue to support Virginia communities. So in Virginia, we use this funding already. We're over $300 million for the Commonwealth, which has gone to the Community Flood Preparedness Fund and has also helped with energy efficiency for affordable housing. And so we saw that he said he would remove it via executive order. And he received pushback on that. And then his executive order did come out, which he framed it as being something that he wanted regulatory review on and ultimately to have the Citizen Air Pollution Control Board vote on that regulatory change. Those that are familiar with the Reggie process maintain it is it is a law. <laughs> it is a law. Right, right. A law. General Assembly, they had to agree to this. This wasn't just something that like a governor put in place. The General Assembly, both House delegates and the Senate, agreed to this under Democratic leadership. And for Youngkin to just come in and say, we're not doing it, doesn't necessarily fly. I just want to put that out there. Right. So can't be removed through this process. It is a law. But what he has done is opened up the mechanism in which he intends to have us removed. And there's a public comment period associated with that. There's sort of a notice of intent public comment period. So we've seen a lot of public pushback against removing us from this program as we've seen the positive benefits of our participation already. And so this summer there had been, and there continues to be a series of pushback in the media, pushback in terms of in-person rallies in support of Reggie. On August 31st, there were simultaneous rallies in six different cities in Virginia in support of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. I was able to attend a recent air pollution control board meeting where he had his acting natural resources secretary speak on this issue. So the administration has made it very clear what they feel about this program and that they want the Commonwealth to be removed from that. So you can find a lot of great resources of folks that are talking about this issue and pushing back on that steam. He literally ran on getting us out of Reggie. Outside of an ideological opposition 
to any sort of initiative to actually cut greenhouse gas emissions because as michelle bachman says you know like co2 is a great thing we all need co2 outside of that ideological opposition is there any reasonable reason to be against the rggi in terms of in terms of regulation or in terms of like actually developing the economy because the amount of money that one would save in terms of climate change in particular with hurricanes particularly with drought events or flooding and other weather anomalies and also being able to actually grow crops for extended period of time have predictable weather infrastructure all the rest of that Mm -hmm. is there any sort of real reason to have a tactile opposition outside of that ideological opposition we've seen the benefits it brings virginia and we've seen that to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars and what does that look like that program is working. It looks like funding that's gone to energy efficiency for low to moderate income households. It looks like funds going into the flood preparedness uh, fund. So we are haven't been in it that long, but we are seeing those positive results already. His intention is to withdraw us by the end of 2023. And that's really, even though the program has generated significant investments in affordable energy efficient, efficient housing, blood prevention programs across the Commonwealth. So we and and many other advocates in the state are of the mindset that it's purely uh, beneficial to Virginia. Right. And if you could, uh, if you could just put a little bit more detail on that. So, you know, within the regional greenhouse gas initiative, companies buy essentially a future allotment of the amount of CO2 they're allowed to put out. Is that correct? They are essentially buying allowances for what they are emitting. It is market-based and it includes Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Virginia. Right, um, right. And it's the intention is to reduce CO2 emissions. So the number of allowances gets smaller, smaller, smaller as companies are making their transition to a clean energy future. Um, this is helping motivate that. And so it is a regional initiative. The other states that participate in this have found it to be very helpful and it is helping to reduce CO2 emissions. And so what they call is kind of like a Reggie auction for the allowances. You are able to find information online about the offset allowance emissions tracking. They've set it up sort of like there are like online hubs where you can see who's buying, who's buying less and where the investments of the Reggie proceeds have gone. So, yeah, I mean, it's doing very helpful things in many states in the U.S., especially in the Northeast, which is where the majority of the participants are. In that way, those allowances are then put into a fund in order to allow, or at the very least, in order to assist everyday people and other businesses in order to switch over to green modes of electricity and energy production. Is that right? Yes. You're looking at in terms of direct for households, weatherization would be one way. How do you make a home more energy efficient? And that's one way that they are helping. And then going into flood preparedness, which is anticipating what problems could be happening, how you can be ready for what you, you know are likely to be possibly more recurrent flooding. Yeah, I mean, it, it has 
direct programs. It's going into direct buckets, essentially. And they're already seeing really positive impacts from it. Apparently, from what I understand, the Virginia Automobile Dealers Association is dead set against something like the RGII. Uh, but also another plank of what Glenn Youngkin is looking to do in terms of tearing apart what Democrats have been able to pass in the 2019 and 2020 uh, legislative sessions and 2021 legislative sessions. It looks as though that he's also gone after what he calls the California standard or the California 2035 gas car van. Now, a lot of people would say that we need to ban gas cars a lot sooner than 2035. I had on Wyatt Gordon, he stated that some 40%, if not 41% of the total emissions within Virginia that in terms of greenhouse gases come just from transportation in terms of driving trucks and cars on the road. That's huge. But in the case of Virginia, Virginia adopted the same sorts of standards that California has and 14 other states plus D.C. has. Now, it won't come into effect to 2024, but Glenn Youngkin tried, along with Republicans, to repeal that piece of legislation, and they failed. That is a major component of bringing Virginia into line with the rest of the country. And Democrats have tried so hard, at least in this state, to try and, 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 and pull the state at the very least into line with other states in, in, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and trying to make the state more efficient. Before Governor Ralph Northam came into office, much of Virginia's energy was created by coal, by burning coal or petroleum. Much of it now is created through natural gas production or through nuclear power. And so natural gas, of course, is not clean at all. However, it is less emitting from what we understand, hold bar the methane emissions that it can create or does create than something like coal. And so that was a major transition that was done under someone like Ralph Northam. Well, I'll, I'll mention it is carbon that is being produced less, right? That's going down. But methane is a more potent greenhouse gas emission. So the idea that it's cleaner than coal, I think, is a misnomer, too. And Ralph Northam's administration, sort of on the tail of McAuliffe's, McAuliffe signed mitigation agreements for the ACP and MVP, his second to last or um, last day in office. And so they certainly um, were supporting projects that would significantly contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. Governor Glenn Youngkin has also gone after solar plants within Virginia. If you actually drive, if you take a drive up, I-64 and you go past Richmond, if you take essentially the I-95 uh, pass by I-64 to go around Richmond in order to go northward, you'll see an absolutely massive, absolutely massive solar plant that's been there for a few years, and that's being maintained by Dominion Energy. And Dominion Energy is its own within Virginia. However, it does look as though that Virginia and regulatory agencies under Glenn Youngkin are looking to set out a lot of major changes to stormwater runoff from from solar farms. Now, it looks as though that on March 29th, a memo announced the policy change, and the Department of Environmental Quality, which is a major regulatory board here in Virginia, Director Mike Rollband, 
explained the move as an effort to safeguard the protection of downstream waterways, as well as ensure the consistency with the Chesapeake Bay program that the EPA has. So it looks as though that they are looking to make it much harder for or much more expensive for solar plants to be implemented. Now, it is interesting that Virginia has gone about adopting quite a bit of solar because of how much sunshine and light that we do get here. But if you can just briefly, can you explain how Governor Glenn Youngkin fits into the MVP fight and how his administration or Republicans broadly since the election last year have thrown obstacles in the way of trying to ensure the MVP complies with the law or at the most the actual goal of having the MVP stopped coming through Virginia and harming those communities? So you're touching on two things. So I want to go back to what you mentioned about solar. So DEQ is the you know regulatory agency that reviews that. And so concerns from solar projects that we've seen in counties across Virginia oftentimes come from erosion failures, sediment control failures for local or sort of the adjoining farms. I mean, I was able to hear about some specific concerns raised in Louisa County. Um, okay. And so, yeah, uh, Director Rolban did reclassify the panels as impervious and so that you would have different regulations to make sure that you're managing runoff in a different way. So that has come up a bunch at the State Water Control Board meeting. So I, and there's also a, a solar law, HB 206, that was passed last session um, that's looking into how to make these farms the least negatively impactful to existing land. Of course, we certainly want to have distributed solar whenever possible and the opportunity to use brownfields, which is existing land that may not be able to have another use. So we've seen across the state, there is an appetite for lots of solar development. At a solar summit this year, we heard Representative Terry Kilgore say that he wants Southwest Virginia, wants the, he characterized it as the energy capital of the East Coast in terms of its coal production. He'd love to see it as an energy capital for solar. So we've seen a bipartisan support of solar projects. And I would say too, the DQ director's background is in stormwater management, Oh, has a background in that. So I think it's of a particular interest to them. In terms of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, Governor Yunkin's administration did submit a comment during the most recent FERC comment period. But that is the only thing I've seen from his administration specific to the project. You may see legislators weighing in. The most recent comment period with FERC was for their request to extend their certificate by an additional four years. Ultimately, that was granted, even though the comments were overwhelmingly in opposition to granting that. But we saw, I think, around 10 Republican state legislators, between 10 and 15, I think, weigh in. And then we had at least over 26 Democratic state legislators weigh in. So we saw that's the way in which they've been participating. So you'll see state legislators weigh in on MVP during comment periods, at public hearings, at state water control board or air pollution control board meetings. That's where we see a lot of that involvement. So I guess a wrap up question is there are other fights outside of the MVP pipeline that are happening across Virginia, particularly one here in Chesapeake. Can you go over how the future of those fights is going to look with Republicans in control? Can you 
give us a sort of preview of what fights are coming up between the, the Water Control Board, the Department of Environmental Quality, those regulatory bodies, but also in terms of legislation that you all are concerned about that could come up in the upcoming January session? I've not seen any legislative drafts to be able to speak on that, but the one I'm most familiar with is the Virginia Reliability Project, which would be a 48-mile sort of expansion of pipeline going through Surrey, Sussex, Isle of Wight, the cities of Chesapeake, and through Suffolk. And so that is at a federal level. That's, I mentioned before, is within the FERC docket, even though it's expanding just a portion, but it's expanding a TC Energy and Columbia gas line that is an interstate line. And so what we've seen in that space is that the docket for that has been very active with Virginia legislators. And I think that really will be a project that will continue to need to and will gain Virginia-wide attention about its potential harmful impacts to the communities along the route, disturbance of wetlands, potential harms to the Nansenman River, the Great Dismal Swamp, the maritime communities that are historic in that area, the possibility that they would bore under the Western Branch Reservoir, which is a drinking source for lots of population centers, including Norfolk. So that's an issue that's top of mind for me for that region and for the whole Hampton Roads region. And it speaks to the overall threat of additional new fossil fuel infrastructure. We're at such a critical point of needing to stop the building of new fossil fuel infrastructure to manage what we have, to limit additional emissions, to prevent new harms, water resources. So I think that is really going to be an issue that's top of mind. Another one that I get the chance to work on is the potential threat of large-scale metals mining in Virginia. Virginia has a gold pyrite belt that reaches from Fairfax to Halifax. And the Commonwealth has historically been a location for lots of different metals mining, including gold, but we've never seen it in a large scale format. And large scale format is quite a disturbing thing to see, especially if it's an open pit mine. So that's something that's raising a lot of concern with communities that already have exploratory drilling going on. We're looking at Buckingham, where gold exploratory drilling has happened, Pennsylvania and Campbell counties, where copper, zinc, and lead are being explored for. And we think this will be a growing Commonwealth-wide issue because it really would affect everybody downstream, too, which is millions of people. And essentially, you know, it's all about the water, right? It's about negative impacts to water resources and this finite resource that we have to have to have a healthy healthy future. So I think you'll see a lot more concern and attention on the growing number of issues impacting Virginia's water resources. I'm really glad that you were able to join me, Jess. I'm glad we were able to have this conversation. I do hope that we're able to stay within Reggie. I do hope that a lot of those environmental regulations stay in place. I definitely keep you in mind, uh, along with Dr. Crystal Cavalier, whenever I hear about any sort of environmentally dangerous products, because as you stated, especially when it comes to fossil fuel infrastructure, you know, these are long-term projects and plans. The amount of carbon that we have in the ground needs to stay in the ground. And we're at a very critical time in our fight against climate change to make sure these projects don't come to fruition. It was really nice speaking to you, Jess. I'm glad you were able to set aside some time. I do thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It was glad to talk. Very glad to talk to you. And I appreciate your time.